0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where tonight's going to be a very interesting night, as it is each and every single week here at the Talk Junkie household, um, or basement, whichever you want to call it. Uh, Just want to give a huge shout out to my cousin, Matthew, last week, he was on the show, we talked about the benefits of eating eating healthy, um, specifically his type of diet that he's been doing, just eating, I I forget the percentage he said, but it's something crazy, like 60% fruit, 20% vegetable, and like 20% meat. And then the dude's been doing it for years, so if that's something that interests your fancy... Tune in last week's podcast. Thank you, Matthew, for joining Talk Junkies. But anywho, tonight is going to be, again, a very interesting night. We had the pleasure of bringing on um, Randy Walsh a few weeks ago or a couple months ago, and we talked about the fake moon landings. And through that process, um, Randy kind of introduced me into a new individual who's going to be joining the podcast tonight, who's also in the forefront of kind of um, just disproving the, the point that we went to the moon. And um, he's here this evening. His name is Marcus Allen. Okay. How are you doing, sir?
1: Hi there. I'm very well, thank you. You're very kind to invite me. I, Randy spoke very highly of your interview. What a liar. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He spoke very highly. He said they, you were nice people. You asked good questions. So I'm looking forward to those nice, good questions. Hard questions. Don't give me an easy time. Give me the hard question because then I can give you good answers. There you go. We'll do it. We'll do our best now.
0: And that's what that's what tonight will be about. Well, before we get into that, man, what kind of led you to the journey of finding out or what led you on this path to trying to disprove the fact that we went to the moon? Because it's the greatest milestone of mankind. I think that no one could argue that if it were to
1: be true. But what led you on this path, man? Okay, that's a good point. You can tell I'm old enough to have been around when it actually happened. I was living in London at the time, 1969, July the 20th, 1969. I was living in a lovely place in London and I had a little black and white television. And I heard about this moon landing. I thought I'm gonna watch that. This could be history in the making. So I watched it. Neil Armstrong getting onto the lunar surface, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And then they went capering about all over the moon. I watched it right till the end. It was just over two hours, two hours, 21 minutes it lasted that first moon landing. I thought, this is fantastic. What an achievement. America has done what they said they were going to do. John Kennedy made his announcement in May 1961, land a man on the moon before the decade is out. And here we are, July 1969, just over seven years later. Success. Wonderful. Great. What an achievement, I thought. And for 20 years, I believed that because I had no reason not to. Until I went to a talk Given by uh, It was actually given by an American in uh, Glastonbury. You've heard of Glastonbury? No. The music festival, all that. Anyway, they do lots of other things in Glastonbury other than the music festival, which isn't actually in Glastonbury. It's five miles outside the town. And there are plenty of talks. Uh, it's given by an organisation called the Glastonbury Symposium. And we talk about all these sort of things. And this chap was talking about megalithic architecture. And he happened to mention, in passing almost, as if it was something everybody knew, oh, you remember, remember those photographs taken on the moon? This, this was uh, early 1990s, I heard this. They're not, they're not real, they weren't taken on the moon, they're all fake. And I thought, what is he talking about? What a stupid thing to say. Now, I was trained as a photographer. I spent two years at photographic college. I wanted to learn the technique of photography, not what to take, what to do when you're taking it, whether the photograph would come out, how you you develop it, how you enlarge it. This is the days of black and white. Now, this is an important point. This is photographic film. This is what was used on Apollo. So I knew about photographic film. This is black and white photographic film, which you uh, put into a camera, take the pictures and then put it into through a developer. That's photographic film. It's not digital. This is the key point. Digital cameras didn't come along until 1975, well after Apollo. So it was all done on photographic film and all the film, the Mara 16mm film cameras used photographic film as well. So I knew enough about photographic film and what it could and couldn't do. So I looked at the pictures. I had to go out to an astronomy show in London to buy a set of postcards of the Apollo photographs. Now, these are over 30 years old. That's Apollo 15, that's Apollo 11. And I looked at these pictures and I thought, I can see what he's talking about. There's something a bit weird about them because they're very good. It's not a problem with them being very good. By that time I discovered what it was, what the conditions were on the moon where these photographs were taken and the conditions under which they were taken and the camera that was being used, the Hasselblad 500EL electric motor drive which didn't have a viewfinder because you couldn't get your head down close enough to on Hasselblad, it's in the top of the camera. So I discovered it didn't have a viewfinder and you had to have manual control of the uh, aperture setting, the shutter, the shutter ring and the focus ring. And you were using a spacesuit <laughs> like that. And you were operating your camera and you were focusing it you had to do it it wasn't an auto it wasn't a point and shoot camera this was a camera you had to set the information on it by hand manually by hand using a when you're wearing a spacesuit and this is what the spacesuit would look like now here's the question would you take photographs at your wedding wearing heavy duty gardening gloves because in fact that's what they are you probably wouldn't absolutely not would you operate a computer keyboard would you operate your computer keyboard wearing heavy-duty gardening gloves no you probably wouldn't but in Apollo they did and the photographs were taken and they were very good photographs on Apollo 11 121 of them taken on the lunar surface over the next six missions or five missions or six landed three didn't Six landed, there were 5,771 photographs. Not all of them came out very well. Some are out of focus, some didn't show anything much of interest. But quite a lot of them had very good details. This is Apollo 15. Now, if you're going to photograph something like that, it's a very good photograph, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's called a pack shot, in technical terms, where you've got Subjects of interest here, and that sort of leads you across through the flag, through the lander, through the rover. Your eye is taken across, you hardly need a caption. You know what you're looking at. Man on the moon. And then you've got the famous photograph of Buzz Aldrin. I looked at these I say, these were 28 years ago I bought these. And I looked at them and the more I've looked at them, the more I realized that they are not taken on the moon. They couldn't have been taken on the moon. We'll come to the main reason why they couldn't have been, aside from the fact that you can't use the camera wearing heavy duty gardening gloves and get that sort of accurate focusing, accurate aperture setting, accurate shutter speed setting with the the, the little rings on the front of the Hasselblad camera. Yeah, it was a, a wide angle lens that was used, very good lens. Zeiss made them in what was then East Germany. Was operated using basically small batteries in the motor drive batteries in motor drive now what's the temperature on the moon cold in, the, in, in sunlight it's 250 degrees fahrenheit that's hot enough to cook a chicken out in the shade it's minus 100 degrees fahrenheit cold enough to freeze you off <laughs> Colder than anywhere you can find here on Earth. The the coldest temperature on Earth is in Antarctica and in Siberia. Minus 80 degrees centigrade. But on the moon, it's colder than that. You've probably read stories of uh, photographers in Antarctica having trouble keeping their cameras warm.
0: Well, so before you keep going, Marcus, I actually went to a Chiefs playoffs game against the Patriots. It was the AFC championship game, and I had my P900 with me. And I love right. ta- I love taking the P900 to these NFL games because I can get really up close shots from any distance on the stadium, and it was so cold that day. I remember the ticket prices went super low, and we ended up going to the game. Or it was me and my brother. I, I don't think you you went, um. But anyway, anyways, my P900 it one the battery drained extremely fast, and I yeah. was only able to get like a quarter's worth of pictures. I had a full battery, made sure it was charged. I've taken it many times, and I want to say it was probably like. 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit.
2: In all fairness, digital versus.
0: Yeah, no, no. I'm just saying for the sake of what you're talking about, yeah. my camera, yeah. it wasn't able to, my $1,000 camera wasn't able to keep up with that type of weather, 15 degrees Fahrenheit. So sorry, I just wanted to bring that up.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's a good point because it compares quite interestingly, quite favorably with with the conditions on the moon. <coughs> now I said there was another problem on the moon with photographs. And I'll keep bringing this up because this is, this is a key to this whole Apollo photographic film. If you take photographic film to the moon, what will happen to it? It will disintegrate. Because on the moon, you have what's called a vacuum. The vacuum level on the moon is vastly harder, use the term harder, It's not a perfect vacuum that's in deep space. It's probably, you probably won't get a a perfect vacuum because physically it's difficult to do that. Basically a vacuum is an absence of matter. There's nothing there. So if you put photographic film into a vacuum which is what happens on the moon, the emulsion, this stuff, The emulsion on which the photograph, the sensitive photographic material is coated. On the back of it is a plastic backing. The photographic emulsion which records the image because it's light sensitive. That's why if you look there, it's a different. Color because it's um, been exposed for longer. If you put photographic film on the moon. It will basically be destroyed. How do we know this? Some friends of mine in Canada, friends of Ferrandi's actually as well, when they heard this, and I'll come to how I heard about this a bit later, they went out and bought a commercial vacuum chamber about the size of a small dustbin, about three or four foot high, two foot diameter. And it takes quite a long time to produce a vacuum inside it. Now, the first thing you can do to test if you've got it, you put a bowl of water in it, in the vacuum chamber, reduce the vacuum, the water starts to boil. That's called outgassing. Outgassing is when the vacuum in effect pulls the lighter elements, the hydrogen, the helium out of the material. The other effect of a vacuum is called cold welding. It's what the name says. It's welding using a vacuum. This is, you can Google it, check it. You can see the pictures of it. It's the same thing. When you put metals into a vacuum and reduce and produce a vacuum with the metals inside, the lighter elements in the metals come out of the metal, the hydrogen, the helium, the lighter elements, and they basically wander around looking for something to get welded to. And if there are two metals close together, they will weld together. So how did the cameras work? Because the cameras are quite, t- Basically, it's like a Swiss watch, a Hasselblad camera. It's beautifully made. It's the best camera you could buy then, the best camera you can buy today. It's a very, very good camera indeed. And Hasselblad were asked to produce cameras for the Apollo space program. And they said, yes, we can do that. There were certain adjustments they made. They put little levers on the aperture focus and shutter speed rings. They put a big shutter button on the front of the camera. The Hasselblad has its shutter on the front of the camera. Interestingly, you can't see it from inside your spacesuit. And the dial telling you if you've, got it, if you've taken a photograph is on the side of the camera. can't see that either from inside your spacesuit. So with all these restrictions of use of the camera, the Hasselblad camera, some of the most iconic images of the 20th century were taken. I think not. They were taken here on Earth under controlled studio conditions by professional photographers. And if anybody can prove me wrong when I say that, I want to hear about it. I've been saying it for 25 years. Nobody has proved me wrong. Photographic film does not work in a vacuum. So how do, how do, I, how do I know that? I'm a member of, uh, you may have heard of it, the British Interplanetary Society. It's a space advocacy group in London it's been around for about 80 years. 1933 it was uh, for 90 years almost. It produces quite a nice magazine called Space Flight. And occasionally they have talks. They have interesting people to do with the space program generally to To come and talk to it, to the members, about 50 or 60 people. I've actually spoken there. I, oh, of course, all terrible trouble that did. Hmm. Uh, Apollo didn't happen. But I, I got out without being lynched. Anyway, one of the one of the talks I went to was a guy who had designed the camera equipment on the Hexagon spy satellite. The Hexagon spy satellite, also known as KH9, Keyhole 9. It was launched about 1970, well before any digital cameras were around. So it was launched with photographic film on board. It was designed to orbit the Earth on a polar orbit and photograph Russia. As Russia got a bit pissed off when uh, the U-2 planes were flying over so we had to do something else so they developed this incredible satellite it's about 60 foot long 10 or 15 foot in diameter it would fit inside the space shuttle it's actually why the space shuttle was designed the way it was to carry the hexagon spy satellite There were over 20 launches of it over a 20-year period anyway the chap who was giving the lecture he designed the camera equipment that was in the Hexagon Spy Satellite. You can check it out. There's, there's plenty of information about it. And, uh, Oh, just in case anybody breaks down, i got my Apollo 11 repair manual. I've also got the, um, where is it? Oh, it's not here. Anyway, um, this is the magazine of the British Interplanetary Society, Space Flight. This was produced about uh, three years ago at the time of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. Anyway, this chap was talking about the camera equipment he'd used and he mentioned, almost in passing, as if everybody knew, well, of course, we had to pressurize the film in the spy satellite. We had to pressurize the film and he showed us the nitrogen gas bottle they used to pressurize it with. It was all enclosed in a pressurized environment, about one pound per square inch, nothing very much. I thought I've never heard about that. I didn't know you had to pressurize film in space. Why is that? I actually asked him the question at the end of the talk. I said, would the same apply to Apollo, that the film has to be contained within a pressurized environment or it will become or get destroyed? He said, of course it will. Film is destroyed in a vacuum. I thought, bloody hell. I knew there was another spacecraft that used photographic film that had orbited the moon. It was called the Lunar Orbiter, not to be confused with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. That came in 2009. The Lunar Orbiter was sent in 1966 to photograph potential landing sites for Apollos before anybody had attempted to do it. And that used photographic film in a pressurized environment within the spacecraft. And it used a form of Polaroid system where the film was developed on board the spacecraft. It's highly technical and and very impressive the way it was developed. The photograph was then scanned, and the scan was transmitted back to Earth, and the picture was reassembled. Incredible. This is mid-1960s. So two spacecraft, the, the hexagon spy satellite and the lunar orbiter. Use photographic film in space. Under pressure, each but, of them had pressure, and you, you can check the schematics of the Mexican spy satellite. You can check the schematics of the lunar orbiter, and so you can see it says pressurized container.
0: Did NASA try and walk back and say that they pressurized the film? Uh, say the, again? Did NASA come back or walk back and say that they pressurized the film from the pre, like from the first and for the Apollo eleven? Yeah, for Apollo eleven. No. No, they didn't. So they never there's there's evidence out there to to show people that they never pressurized the film, which the gentleman you talked to said it has to be pressurized
1: or it's going to vaporize. It has to, it has to be pressurized. And my colleague in Canada who did the experiment with his own uh, really small scale vacuum chamber, he put the equivalent film that had been used on Apollo into the vacuum chamber and at a relatively low vacuum the film which he then put into a camera took pictures with it the color balance of the film was completely shot the greens were not coming out green the reds were not red the blues were not blue the film was shot now vacuum is measured in something called tor T-O-R-R, named after the italian scientists who developed the barometer evangelista torricelli Tor, T-O-R-R, at, uh, uh, at sea level here on Earth, it's 768 Torr. It's the equivalent of millimeters of mercury. You get to the top of Mount Everest and the pressure is considerably less. It's five pounds per square inch, it's about 180 Torr. You get to the International Space Station, it's Torr 10 to the minus three, relatively low. But when you get to the moon, it's 10 to the minus 12, i.e. one billionth. It's, it's almost nothing. So it's, there is still uh, a degree of pressure, but it's not particularly strong. And you put photographic film in it, and it, it rips out the emulsion because the emulsion starts life as a liquid. It's coated onto the plastic backing. It's dried out, obviously starts life as a liquid. And that liquid will become damaged by the vacuum. So how were these photographs taken? All these iconic images, Buzz Aldrin taken by Neil Armstrong, we're told, on the moon. How was that taken? Question,
3: Question for you here now. Was there any, because I was born in 1991, so all this is before, I I grew up with Photoshop and and all that. Was there any form of being able to doctor and clean up an image that possibly maybe that they had like shitty images that you were talking about that, that it was probably a bad image, but then they just cleaned it up to make it like look cleaner? Was there any form of that technology back then?
1: Um, it would be something like Photoshop. That was first developed in 1989. It's been developed considerably more since then. Um, Adobe, it's, it's one of the great products of Adobe.
3: But, but as far as back then in, in 1969, um, there was, them, a, there, was, was no, there any way to take those photographs and actually clean it up to where that's what it, it looks like now, you holding it up, to where maybe yeah. the the astronauts really did a bad job taking it and then somehow they had some technology to clean it up and, right. you know, polish the image.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, I understand your point. The photographs that we see here, these were taken on Kodak Ektachrome film. There was no such thing as digital back in 1969 yes, or even 1972. Digitals didn't come in until 1975. So those were all taken on Kodak Ektachrome film. It's a very good film. Like Kodak like Kodak, Kodachrome. It's a pity Kodak's gone bust because they didn't see the digital wave coming. But when they made photographic film, they made very good film, and you would develop it as a, as a process that you used, where you take the film out of the camera and it, in the dark, and it goes into a process, and it's, it develops the film, and then you get a photograph, the transparency. I don't know if you see like the,
3: the negative like you're talking about like the negative of, of the film at all. I just don't know uh, enough about photography, okay. my bad. I'm, I'm trying would, too hard there with that, but
1: right. Negative is what you get with color film, color photographic film. You get a photographic negative which is then printed to produce a positive image. Same with black and white. If you develop, take a take a picture on black and white film, you develop it, and what you've got then after the development process is finished and it's all dried off, you've got a negative. That's why it's called a negative. You then take that negative and put it in an enlarger, and you can then, same as same as taking a picture in, in Photoshop, but you use a computer with Photoshop. With the, the original black and white film, you would use a photographic enlarger, sensitive photographic paper, Chemicals to develop it. I mean, it all sounds very twentieth century and a bit old old fashioned, but that's what happened in those days. These films were taken on Kodak ectochrome film, which had to be developed.
0: So they literally they took those pictures at the moon. They brought them back to the to to the to the Earth. And then they yep. develop those photos, and that's what you got. There's no doctor, doctoring those photos. It is what it is type of thing.
3: Or, and and yeah. I'm assuming, because you can even, even in Photoshop today, people, there's experts that can sit down and say, man, these are these are doctored um, yeah. images here. Is there any yeah. belief in, in your mind or heard an expert say that, yeah, these were poorly taken photos, but it was just reenhanced for the public or whatever through some kind of doctoring just to brighten it or polish it? I just don't in, think that works sense. with
2: like classic film. I know,
3: but that man, I'm yeah. I was just Where, born in nineteen ninety one, so, so I, I, I didn't know if there was some kind of technology back then that would that had capabilities yeah. of doing
0: that. Where do they have yeah. these photos, at, Marcus, of the original the original prints of the, of the of the photos from the moon landing? Where are they
1: at? In the Johnson Space Center, in climate controlled vaults. Nobody has seen them. What they did when they when they developed them, they took prints off them or duplicates. Hence the term dupe. You can duplicate a color film and produce basically an exact copy of what you've uh, originally got. From that duplicate, you can print, if you want to, you can print a color image. It's a a complicated process, but it's not difficult to do. If you've got the technology to do it, you can produce a duplicated image. And that's that's what these are. Now, about 10 years ago, these these pictures were all, or many of them, were changed. Many of them were, um, should we say, altered. This picture here, I bought it 28 years ago. And if you look at the top of his helmet, it's almost black. And if you look on the surface of the image here, there's what's called fall-off between the foreground, the illumination of the foreground, the illumination of the back fall off is when you your light source is insufficient to illuminate the whole area you want illuminated if this is the moon it would be about two miles away the horizon of the moon is about two miles away if this was being used if this is being shot with artificial light which i claim it was because that's where you've got this sort of central bit here the sort of bit here, which is a bit brighter than the rest of it. If it's illuminated by sunlight, it would be evenly illuminated all the way to the horizon, but it's not. There's fall off, a technical term for the light is not sufficiently powerful to illuminate it correctly right across the image. Now that can be changed and it has been. On the Lunar Surface Journal website, You can you can see this picture and it has been brightened in Photoshop and you can tell it has because if you look at the top of the helmet here, this is almost black. That was the original. We've got one here that goes back to uh, 1969 National Geographic. Look at the top of the helmet. It's almost black. The, The more recent images are quite gray. Because they've reduced the contrast to try to hide what a lot of people have been pointing out to dear old NASA, never a straight answer, dear old NASA, that the fall off in the image is indicative of a studio shot. And NASA said, it seems <coughs> after you pointing
2: everything out, it seems so obvious that I'm surprised more people aren't talking about it. I know people have been talking about the, the lunar landing and it being fake and all this for a long time. But the big thing that got me that to me personally should be common sense, even with like not a photographer, know nothing about lighting and all of that before you even went into the detail about the, uh, did you call it emulsion, emulsion on the film? Emulsion. Yeah. Before emulsion. you went into the detail of that. And before you went into talking about a vacuum and everything, whenever you first pulled, pulled up the film strip, because once again, I was born in 90, so I grew up in the digital age, so I never even thought about it being on hard film, as I would call it. But as soon as you pulled that up, before going into the science of it, I instantly knew, as I feel like every common man should, that there's no way that survives the vacuum of space. Like, the moment you pulled it up, I was like, everything it takes to develop film, like hard film or whatever, and all that, and and, like the dark room and all the science behind it and everything, I'm like, there's no way... That, that would work in space with extreme temperature changes, a vacuum, all of this stuff. Even, like I said, before you brought up those facts, that kind of hit me instantly. And I was actually going to ask you about it. That was going to be my question. But you went ahead and answered everything. And I'm like, I feel like that should be relevant to the average layman. Like, that should be... yeah
0: something that people think about well and that's what we talked about on the phone marcus was the fact yeah. that um it's just all these small details are passed whenever like you grow up in our type of age again i'm 89 so the big I, thing
2: i didn't even think about it being on yeah
0: film well, when i i was born in 89 it's like you're just told you went to the moon and hey just believe this this is what we did nothing to see here just it's the status quo but whenever you get older and you try and like just logically think about these things and then it, just having you on and, dude, I would have never thought about those small details, what you just described. Like, those are just things that I wouldn't really even think of. And and Randy, when he came on, he went into some very extreme he, detail. My on favorite just,
2: part about what Randy talked about was, like, the engines and stuff. Yeah, He talked about the actual, like, the rocket engines, the fuel amount needed, that's, that's, all that.
0: That's way over my head, though. But what, what you're bringing to the table is something simple that you can put in front of someone's face and say, hey, refute this. And anyone with an average IQ can
1: understand this is what you're bringing to the table. I mean, everybody understands photographs because we look at them every day, whether it's on television or in books or in magazines. We look at photographs. We don't even think about it until it's explained what it takes to get that image from real life, whether it's a model or whether it's a person or a car or an airplane, what it takes to get that image onto a piece of paper or onto a television screen. And it's quite a complex process.
2: Do you mind? Do you mind holding up that image one more time—the one of Buzz Aldrin? Do we? Do no, we know? I'm, I'm curious. The part that I don't understand about that image, looking at like, and I, like I said, I'm no photo expert. None of this. But looking at that image, the part I don't understand is, and maybe it's just too far away for me. Why is the top of his helmet black, or is that actually the color of his spacesuit? Like, is that a shadow, or is that the color of his spacesuit?
1: It, it's a shadow. That doesn't make any
2: sense, because I'm like, what is above him causing that? Because if the sun shining down on them, like the top of that helmet should be glaring exactly like the surface right behind him.
1: Um, not necessarily, because if you see where the sun is shining, it's about 15 degrees above the horizon, the sun at the point that they were alleged to have land, landed. So the sun wouldn't have illuminated the top of his helmet. Okay. Yes, it's, it, it, it's, it's got a shadow across it. What I'm saying is that the the more recent image that has been put into the Lunar Surface Journal and the the Flickr account, you can can go online and see them. I use the Lunar and Planetary Institute website because I find it easier to use. You can go and look at this. It'll look quite gray and washed out.
2: They just adjusted the contrast or turned the contrast way down or whatever.
1: Yeah, because all these pictures have been scanned and that's why they're online. they they had to be scanned to get them online what mark the original photograph and and this is an original photograph which i i bought in 1992 i've had it ever since and it's been mounted because i appeared on jeremy clarkson's television show talking about this do you do you Uh, know who
3: what astronaut was taking that picture that you're holding up right there
1: yeah, it's allegedly Neil Armstrong. Okay,
3: so Neil Armstrong. Is there any yeah. record of Neil Armstrong going through any kind of photography training at all?
1: Ah, if you ask that, they'll say, yes, they spent, they were given these cameras, very good cameras, and they were told to use them all the time. <clears throat> they would go to barbecues and picnics and holidays, take the cameras with them to get used to using them. But if you look how they they wear their camera on their chest, See that point there? That's where the camera was supposed to mount. Buzz Aldrin didn't have a camera, hence Neil Armstrong took all the pictures. Have you ever seen a picture of Neil Armstrong on the lunar surface?
3: I, I don't know. I haven't paid close enough attention to that, to be honest with you. Uh, they're, they're all wearing the same thing, so I never yeah, worried about in, who that was.
1: I mean, you can see on there, it says E. Aldrin, Edwin Aldrin. He's called Buzz Aldrin because his sister couldn't pronounce the word brother. But that's why Buzz Lightyear is called Buzz Lightyear. Amazing how it goes down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, it's the photographs which tend to give it away, but you do have to understand how a photograph is created, how it's made, how it's developed, how it's produced, and that's where I kept, that's what, what where I started this whole process. Then I discovered what happens on the lunar surface. What were they wearing? They're wearing a spacesuit.
0: What other because- small details, type of thing?
1: Did, did they yeah. have to wind the camera?
3: Is that one of those where you flip, uh, like, on the left side, you'll flip it up and then have to wind the reel back in, like, with the small dial?
1: Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. And, and another you,
3: thing that you were talking about, just with those massive gloves, unless I actually— unless Devil's they advocate, brought
2: it, he talked about putting— they adjusted the camera, put levers on there, and all that kind okay, of stuff. Okay,
0: you, so you don't have the camera that they have, do you, Marcus, by chance?
1: No, they're, okay. they're about $1,000 $1, to buy them. I mean, even secondhand. They're extremely expensive. Buying them new, that's $45,000. Woo! that's a black camera. They're, they're very, very good cameras, no doubt about that. And they're good because of the lens. The lens has a remarkable ability to resolve images. Resolution is what um, cameras are about. The More lines per millimeter you can resolve, the better the picture.
3: Do you think that these little missed things, if coming from the side of that this was just set up by the U.S. government and actually filmed on Earth and photographed on Earth, that they were just such in a rush to win to win against the Russians on this?
2: You're talking about motive now.
3: Yeah, motive that they missed a bunch of details like this. Uh, which which should have been like I mean man if you really thought this through and if you had enough time but you would be to. able to work you'd be able to work some stuff out like pressurizing the camera but ho- they they could have came out with with something that actually pressurized the camera to where this made sense
1: I think you have that's, to before that's you... where all the information is and you, you're quite right they 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 did rush it they didn't get everything right but they... at the time of Apollo this is late sixties early seventies. The first Apollo mission was Apollo 8 in 1968. The last one was Apollo 17 in 1972. I was born in 1942, so I'm well up to understanding what's going on. They made mistakes. They didn't expect somebody 50 years later would be able to examine it on a computer screen, with high definition, and see some of the problems that were omitted. Now, you can say, well, where did they do all this? Who were the people who took these pictures? It was quite openly done. There's no problem about that. It was done during the training and simulation exercises. They were done quite openly. Hundreds of hours of training and simulation exercises. Each of the Apollo missions was simulated in real time. Apollo 11, for instance, lasted for for eight days. So there was a simulation for eight days and they had different teams coming into uh Houston control center, Polo 12 similar sort of time. Polo 17 was 72 days, de- 72 hours. Extraordinary amount of time that went into the simulation. You're not really, the, I'm not, hold say,
0: on. I'm not really even worried about the simulations that they're doing. I'm more worried about or more concerned and interested in what are more small details that you have to offer? Because I mean, the first few details that you showed us and I'm sorry, Jesse, but just the, just those first few details, that's just one of many I'm assuming. And what yep. other small details are we missing here? I'm sorry. I don't want to backtrack, but to me, I think that's the most important thing. You can talk about all these other things, but it's just the small details that you can point out to people and say, Hey, look at these small details and prove me wrong on this.
3: Like the yeah, devil's prove- in the details. right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Prove me wrong. How does it's another detail I've got. Here we go. Here we go. You recognize this?
2: It's a rock. <laughs> oh, that's a cat.
1: It's a moon rock. Well, Hey, it's worth about a million dollars. How do I know it's real? How do you know it isn't? And NASA will tell you. NASA will come and arrest me because I'm not supposed to have it. No private citizen is supposed to have moon rock. I've been showing it publicly for about 10 years, 15 years. Nobody's come along because if they did, it would probably prove what I'm saying is correct. This is what people think a moon rock looks like. It's it's actually called breccia, breccia. It's a volcanic, it's what they say the moon is made of, different things, that's quartz, felspar, mica, the various components of it, all mixed together because they got melted. So you've got a piece of moon rock. How do we know that the moon rock, 382 kilos of it, they brought back from the moon, is moon rock? How do we know that?
3: You need something to compare it to.
1: Hmm? Wouldn't you
3: need something to compare it to realistically?
1: Good point. You would need something to compare it to. So have they got any moon rock they can compare it to? If this is a piece of moon rock, where is another piece of moon rock you can compare it to and say, yes, it is. No, it isn't. Because NASA, God bless them.
3: (laughs) I heard the sarcasm in your voice there.
1: No, I'm not being sarcastic. Am I? (laughs) I
3: like this guy, Paul. Good job.
1: It's it's called, in Britain, it's called irony. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So sarcasm is, is much more brutal. Anyway, the American way. If, if, if there was a, a piece of rock that we knew had come from the moon, we could compare the two. Ah, there is. They found it in Antarctica. Werner von Braun, remember him? He was the chap who designed that bloody great rocket. 365 foot high, Saturn V rocket. He was a Nazi, came from Germany, built all the uh, NASA's rockets. He was responsible for the V2 rockets that landed on London and during the Second War. 1,200 of them landed on London. I had to get out because I was in London at the time. So he built the Saturn V rocket. And for some reason in 1967, he went on a trip to Antarctica. What? He was supposed to be building rockets, not going to Antarctica, but he went to Antarctica and he brought back a load of rocks, because if you got something hits the moon hard enough, it will dislodge some surface material, which if it is hit hard enough, it will then escape from the moon lunar gravity and will be caught by the Earth's gravity and eventually find its way to Earth. We'll and probably close
3: time. by one of the poles, right? Where gravity's the. But,
1: but even then, it would burn itself through. There's no way that there would be rock well, it pieces. Depends on the
3: size and all that
0: jazz. Sure. but yes.
1: So, and of course, Antarctica is a great place to look for rocks because they're black and you can see them against the snow. The story is that he found a load of rocks in Antarctica. I don't know if that's true or not. I have I've seen him in Antarctica. That's that's for real. Let me ask Whether you
2: he... a question about the the whole the moon rock thing. I would just want to establish. Is there a way that they could, I mean, can you even confirm that, like, that's moon rock that they found in Antarctica as compared to, like, asteroid meteorites? You know what I mean? Like, rock from the moon compared to a random asteroid that has meteorites. Like, how do they know that it's from the moon and not from something else, you know, interstellar?
1: Sure. If it was a meteorite that has just landed on Earth because it was wandering through space and thought, oh, look, it's a nice place to land landed on Earth, it would have what's called a, a, a crust on it because it would come in through the Earth's atmosphere quite fast. And the heat of the entry, we'll get onto the heat of entry of the Apollo spacecraft.
3: Like signs of vitrification,
1: it, kind of. Is- so you, you've got this rock coming through the Earth's atmosphere. Whoa, 40-odd thousand miles an hour, it burns the crust. And that's how you can tell if it's a meteor, I'm told. But you can take the crust off, it's not difficult. Maybe the crust was taken off, who knows? Yeah, I
2: just as soon as you said there was uh, you know moon rock in Antarctica, I just that the first thing that came to my head is how do they know it's from the moon and not something else from space? So I was just curious, that's where I was.
1: Yeah, well, NASA, when they had their 382 kilos of moon rock, they sent um samples to about 60 American, 50 American states and 150 countries worldwide. And everybody thinks, well, that's generous of NASA. They sent them something like that. No, they didn't. They sent them a tiny little piece of dust encapsulated in plastic. And most countries have got these. I've seen one presented to the UK in uh, the Science Museum in London. It says moon rock. So you know it's moon rock, because it wouldn't put on there if it wasn't moon rock, (laughs) would it? So when NASA wanted to uh, test out some of their other rock, they've got most of it in the vaults at Houston. They sent it out to universities around the world, we're told. And they said, compare and contrast. And they said three boxes, one containing a moon rock, with a label on it saying moon rock. Another on it said Hawaii. I got it from the volcanoes in Hawaii. And another one, the Columbia River Basin in uh, Northwest America, volcanic. And they said, compare and contrast. Well, if you've been sent this sample by NASA and you're asked to compare it to various other samples uh, from Hawaii, from Northwest America, what are you going to say if NASA are paying the time for you to examine it. You're not going to say, this doesn't come from the moon. You're going to say, that came from the moon. Now, I've read, there's a huge, great volumes of, of examination of these rocks, dust, whatever you want to call it, which, by the way, you can buy fake moon rock. There are companies that sell it, put in uh, artificial moon rock, and you can do it. That's what Tom Hanks used when he did his... Um, from the Earth to the Moon miniseries, he bought several tons of this stuff and spread it out on a studio floor so it looked like the moon. Do you know where he filmed that, by the way? Mm-mm. Tom Hanks. No. Yeah, from the Earth to the Moon, it was a it was basically a miniseries of all the Apollo missions. I, I saw Apollo
3: thirteen. That was Tom Hanks' movie. Yeah. I, I don't ever remember that, and I'm a, uh, like a cinematography like buff myself. I've and I'm a big fan of Tom Hanks too. I don't remember any of that
1: it was uh, I, I'm not sure if Tom Hanks was it was in that from the earth to the moon maybe he was one of the producers okay it was a it was a, I think it was a 10 part series you know Google it from the Earth to the moon miniseries yeah Tom Hanks was in uh, Apollo 13 and it won six Oscars did admit it', it a great it was a very good film don't you think that might have reinforced the story of Apollo 13 as being a magnificent rescue act. Do you know the real story of Apollo 13? Do you know what really happened? No Apollo idea. 30. I mean, if you've seen the Tom Hanks film, you've you've got a pretty good idea. You know, they launched up. They got about halfway to the moon. Oxygen tank explodes. Oh, God, we've got a problem. Shit we've got hits a problem. the fan. And so they have to go on around the back of the moon, come back, and everybody's getting very overexcited, and they have to jury-rig up their... Um, lithium dioxide crystal scrubbers make sure they don't die from carbon dioxide poisoning and they land back and they're all heroes and get met by the president and it's all wonderful what's the real story of Apollo 13 what really happened on Apollo 13 okay Apollo 13 launched on April the 11th 1970 check that's quite easy bloody great rocket takes off Two minutes after it takes off, it disappears from sight. We have to allow NASA to tell us what's going to happen next. And it goes to orbits of the Earth, and then it translunar injection, off it goes to the Moon. That's the official story. What you don't often hear about is the Soviet Navy were conducting naval exercises in the Bay of Biscay at the same time. The Bay of Biscay is north of spain west of france it's a big big area of water called the bay of biscay it's very rough and the Soviet navy the northern fleet based in mamansk in northern russia were conducting exercises this is quite quite routine stuff nothing unusual about it at all and in part of that exercise they found an Apollo command module floating in the water. What the hell is going on? An Apollo command module floating in the water. Hasn't been reported missing. Did it just fall off the side of a ship? Anyway, the Soviet Navy hauled it on board, took it back to Mamansk. Six months later, the US Coast Guard cutter South Wind was paying a courtesy visit to Mamansk and they collected this command module from the There are pictures of it on the front of the ship, the South Wind, US Coast Guard Cutter. Took it back to uh, their port, port in uh, Baltimore. And it's now on display at the Grand, Map- Grand Rapids Museum in Michigan. That The command module that was rescued by the Soviet Navy is on display. Where is the real Apollo 13 command module on display? Because all command modules are on display. It's in a vault somewhere. <laughs> it should be. It's actually on display at the Kansas Cosmodrome. And you can go and see it. You can't see inside the one at Grand Rapids Museum. Because guess what? It's been sealed in 1976 it was sealed for 100 years the 300th anniversary of the founding of america 2076 what's all that about so there are two apollo command modules from apollo 13 no other mission has it anyway this is this is a for real event but there's an unanswered question why was that command module whatever it is whether it's a It's called a boilerplate, i.e. a practice command module, boilerplate BP1227, that's its official title. It was never reported missing. And why was it there
2: of all places? Like why so far, yeah.
1: Exactly, it's 2,000 miles from um, Cape, Cape Kennedy where it was launched, Apollo 13 was launched. If it was going to be launched from Cape Kennedy And it was going to then go around the earth. It would fly across Africa. And they would look out for something called the eye of Africa, which is a a very visible physical feature in Mauritania, which is in Northwest Africa. You can Google it. It's called the Richat structure, R-I-C-H-A-T, Richat structure. It's about 20 miles in diameter. It's three concentric circles. It's, It's very obvious what it is. Nobody knows what it is. Atlantis, right? So an astronaut being launched would look out for this eye of Africa, the Rechat structure, so they'd know, oh, we're on the right path, guys. You know, carry on. We'll get to India in a minute and then South America and we'll go around again. What's he doing in the Bay of Biscay? That's not on that route at all. It's about 2,000 miles north of Africa.
0: So, is there an official story from NASA on, on where this was at or why it was there?
1: NASA will not address it. NASA will not discuss it. But there are photos.
0: There are photos of the. You said the Soviet that picked it up. The Soviet Navy is that what you said?
1: Yeah, Soviet Navy picked it up. There are photographs of the command module, whatever it is, is on this Coast Guard cutter, the Southwind. Uh, the Russians, or the Soviets at the time, did quite a lot of stories about it. It was, it was, it was a, it was a public event. The coast guard cutter, you know, there were several hundreds crew on board, the coast guard cutters, so They all saw it There photographs of the South wind crew and the Soviet Navy crew alongside it. Well, it's in the middle of winter. So it's a, it's a bit snowy, but you can see what it is. It's an Apollo command module, but you don't hear that story much.
0: Do you? And there are markings on these pictures that indicate it is that com- command module that, like like you're talking about. You can verify that it's the same one that you see in Kansas.
2: No, the one in Michigan.
0: Well, no, that one's in Michigan. You said the real one's in Kansas.
1: Is that right? Well, that's what the Kansas Cosmodrome says it is. Right. What you've got in Grand Rapids Museum is a command module that's sealed. Right. It's it's painted white. It's got um, Apollo on the side, which isn't isn't similar to the way that normal command module is is shown. There's a there's a command module in London. There's Apollo 10 command module. That's on, I've seen that, and it's it's pretty obvious what it is. But there's some interesting things if you look at any command module, you'll see on it what a, basically what a hand holds. They're 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 actually aluminium grab handles. There's about four of them on each command module. What aluminium melts at six hundred degrees centigrade? The temperature coming through into the atmosphere is well over two thousand degrees Celsius. It would melted them. Why hasn't it melted them?
0: Can you not see the markings from the ca- the, the capsule on the bottom? Is there like obvious like going through two thousand degrees of, of of heat for a long extended period of time?
1: No, there's no there's no obvious. Um, Burn marks that would ex- you would expect to see for something that had entered at twenty five thousand miles an hour. That's the speed that you enter Earth's atmosphere at. Twenty five thousand miles an hour. It's going to show you some signs of something. The heat quite hard. That's why when you when you pump up a bicycle tower and you you put pressure into the bicycle pump, it gets warm. That's what happens when you compress air; it gets warm. I, I, so they used. A heat shield to protect the command module well it may have protected it because obviously they all landed successfully nobody got burned nobody got fried but none of the aluminium handles which melted at much lower temperature than they went through they're all still there
2: and those aren't under the heat shield those are just out there
1: there. Oh, the, the... another point. This this heat shield, which actually goes right underneath the command module. It it's basically a, a cone shaped um, vessel. the The biggest areas at the at the base. <coughs> the command the heat shield covers the base, the biggest area. It's what's called ablative. As it heats up. It destroys itself; it mm-hmm. melts basically, and it doesn't. It, it's not. A, it's not. It doesn't affect the contents of the command module. Now that's fine. But the command module has to be attached to the service module below it. That's where all the um, oxygen, water, all the supplies, um, electricity. That's where all. That's what. That's. It's in the service module, which is a cylindrical vessel below the command module. So how were those two, the command module and the service module, how were they attached to each other? They had to be attached to each other. They had six bars from, from the service module through the heat shield of the command module and were bolting, so the two things were bolted together.
2: So basically, you have you have holes then in the ablative. I can't say that word. Ablative, ablative coating. You have to have holes for these bars to go through, or for the connection to go through. Which means That's if right it was entering the Earth's atmosphere, you have. I mean, it'd be like the equivalent. I mean, it's like a hole in your firewall or whatever. Like it's a way for you yes. can't it, like
0: the plate's not going to protect the. It whole would ship.
2: burn up the inside if you've got any kind of connection. Yes,
1: if like open holes in it. It, it's basically what happened on, on the um, uh, Columbia shuttle disaster. When a, a lump of ice hit the uh, the outside of, of Columbia and dislodged some of the uh, protection as it came back into the atmosphere, the heat was so strong, it basically incinerated the spacecraft. I'd- That's what happens if you get a hole in it.
2: I have a question real quick, and I don't. I mean, this. I don't want to backtrack too much, but I've had this question kind of just like running around in my mind, irking me for a moment. I want to step okay. back real quick to the piece of moon rock that you have or the uh, alleged moon rock that you have. Is there, and maybe you answered this and I missed it. Um, you said that that's got like quartz, mica, all these multiple different things in it. Is there a non-synthetic, like a natural forming version of that somewhere on earth?
1: Yes, quite a lot of volcanic material will be similar to this because that's what we're told the moon consists of volcanic okay. eruptions. <clears throat> I mean, go to any big volcano and you can pick up that sort of stuff quite easily. You can also order artificial moon rock, artificial moon regolith, but, but then the in soil th- that covers it.
2: In theory, though, there's so that means, I mean, I know that you talked about NASA sending um, these different places like comparisons, but they've already got everything labeled. So that's really not a blind study in the first place, which is a terrible way to do things. But, um, like yeah, but if yeah. they a- avoiding all that, the point is that if that naturally occurs on earth, anyways, if there is something that you can find similar to that, that's not art, that's not artificial, that has the natural, like the same minerals and everything, then there is no way to prove that that's moon rock, right? Like, cause there is no way to
1: exactly. Yeah. Okay, and so, I, and we might have touched on that
2: earlier. I just missed that point.
1: No, no, it's fine. I mean, that may have come from the moon. I think it's unlikely. It's more likely to have come from a volcanic um, area, maybe Hawaii, maybe Vesuvius, maybe Pompeii, somewhere around there. That's, that's what you'd find if you went to Vesuvius. You'd find something like that.
2: Yeah, that's, the, that's just the point I was getting at for myself real quick was to make sure, that, I mean, there's really no way to prove that's from the moon because you can literally find that exact same thing earthbound
1: there isn't now uh, there's another interesting area which maybe we haven't touched on quite so much yet is if apollo was faked from the beginning why was it faked i'm saying faked motive motive motive. my my favorite
2: part of conspiracy theories is motive
1: motive okay go back to the late 1960s what's happening in america in the 1960s
0: everyone's on vietnam drugs War.
2: vietnam
1: vietnam getting very unpleasant you know uh, you've heard of the my lai massacre no in yeah. uh, check it out. m m m a i l a i mai lai it was 500 vietnamese civilians were shot by american troops deliberately for whatever reason doesn't really matter uh lieutenant Kelly, i think his name was was the command, was the officer in charge he was court-martialed anyway america were getting very it was very unpleasant why why did the vietnam war start what's the basis why why did america invade vietnam what's that all about
3: communism right
1: that's the story
3: no, but that's that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what's put out. Like, that's what I was taught in, like, high the, school. It's the narrative. Is okay. the, the narrative is communism, the fight against communism.
1: Yes, that, that, that's the narrative. Now, the flashpoint for the start of American invasion of Vietnam was what's called the Gulf of Tonkin incident. I would love to point out
2: that you said American invasion of Vietnam because nobody ever says it like that.
1: Cause I no, feel like that, a...
2: I feel like that makes us bad guys and nobody ever says it like that. like, nobody says that we invaded Vietnam, which in all reality is exactly what took place. It's the
3: same shit that's happening right now in the Middle East. Yeah, I'm not trying to digress
2: too much and stuff. I, I just want to I, point out. I'm an, out, a, I'm an American like that, that can recognize
3: used... that we're the, we've been the bad guys in, in a lot of I things. I like that you use that word because nobody but, does. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, if I've used it and it's upset people, I'm sorry. <clears throat> it happens to be the truth
3: no i like it yeah i I like it too needs to be heard
1: okay now the incident that's that started the vietnam war was what's called the gulf of tonkin incident gulf of tonkin is off the coast of north vietnam and what supposed to have happened was that several north vietnamese torpedo boats attacked american ships one of them was the uss maddox The commander of the USS Maddox was a guy by the name of Admiral George Morrison. You might have heard of his son, Jim Morrison, of the Doors.
2: That's crazy. No. I've never heard this before. That can't be right.
3: There you go. That can't be fucking
0: right.
1: Then we get into Laurel Canyon. Heard of Laurel Canyon?
0: I've heard of Laurel Canyon. I don't remember the
1: story. Okay. It's, It's north of Los Angeles. It's a real place. You said like a Navy, Navy Navy
3: fleet, Jim Morrison's father was dealing in Navy level, like high level fleet commander, ship commander,
1: ship commander, Admiral George Morrison. There is no way I haven't heard this before.
3: I've heard a lot of shit about Jim Morrison before. Where I'm like, man, that sounds weird, but never this one.
1: It's the links between the American intelligence services and the military, specifically the civilians. If you go onto a site called the Center for an Informed America and read what Dave McGowan has written there about Laurel Canyon, you'll get a completely different story. He also did a 13-part series called Wagging the Moon Doggy." It's all about Apollo, a Center for an Informed America. Dave McGowan has died, but his daughter is maintaining the website so people can read it. So you've got this weird connection between intelligence services and the music business. Frank Zappa is one of the most prominent people, the Mamas and the Papas. This is back in the 1960s. Trash music, by the way. I, I, I
3: never liked his music. Did you like his music?
1: No, not particularly. No,
3: it's trash music. I'm sorry, it's trash, it's garbage music. Anyway, continue, it's not good music.
1: There was some very good music in the 60s. But not,
3: not Zappa's.
1: No, not Zach. He, <laughs> he he was a very prominent figure. He used to live in Lower Canyon. Oh, political, politically,
3: yeah, yeah.
1: All, all musicians used to come along. Anyway, but how did we start this? Well, um, I just I just want to point
0: out, Marcus, we are a little bit over the hour right now.